0: On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I share my interview with Dave Wages of Ellis Cycles in Franklin, Wisconsin. Each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I record an interview with somebody in the bike frame building world, and hopefully uh, I've, I've helped them tell their story, and then I share it with everybody. It serves as an introduction. Hopefully we all get to learn from each other, and maybe we all get to know each other a little bit better. That'd be really cool. So this week, Dave Wages, Alice Cycles, we help them tell his story And so he worked at Sarada in New York and Saratoga Springs back in the 90s. Then he moved to Wisconsin and he worked at Waterford Precision Cycles for another handful of years, maybe 10 years. And then he started Ellis Cycles around 2007 or 8 or so, and he's been doing that ever since. That's his own brand, just him working away, not a lot of machinery in his shop, and making exquisite lugged and filibrazed bicycles. He does a modern classic. I think that's a good a good pair of words to think about everything that he does. It's contemporary in function. It's made out of steel. It has uh, you know like a classic, timeless beauty to it. Really cool stuff. I followed his things. His I followed his work since the very beginning when I've been interested in bike frame building, and I'm really glad to have him on the show. Let's roll the tape.
1: So. I was, you know, obviously grew up in the suburbs as a kid, as a young kid. And, you know, all my friends had bikes. We had little bikes. They passed around the neighborhood. And um, when I was about 10 years old, we moved out to a very rural area. And, you know, the little uh, single-speed bike that I had, the little Schwinn, didn't quite cut it. You know, you could ride, you know, a mile, and you hadn't really gotten anywhere. hmm <laughs> so, um, I got my first 10 feet when I was probably 12 or 13 years old, and that kind of opened up a whole new wor- world to me, um, riding around the countryside in upstate New York, where I grew up. Um, very hilly area, beautiful um, rural country roads, um, and hard.
0: So, Whereabouts <laughs> you know, in New York a, were you?
1: So the, the specific little town we were in was called Quaker Street, New York. Um, (laughs) you'd have to really like look to find it on a map. Um, it's about a half hour West of like the Albany's connected area. Okay. so like capital district area. Yeah. And so I was biking a lot. Um, obviously like that time was right about the time Greg LeMond was, you know, becoming famous, you know, winning the tour de France and that really piqued my interest and got me interested in bike racing. Um, and as a kid, I kind of couldn't conceive of, you know, having a really cool custom-made bike. Um, that was sort of a dream. And so, I was riding my, you know, bike shop bike. And in art class in high school, I was drawing pictures of really high-end bikes <laughs> with That's fancy right. lugs, and and so I, my art teacher, you know, can can uh, remember many, many bicycle designs. Um, I was getting down to like drawing all the links in the chain and chain ring teeth and the cassette cogs. And it was pretty, uh, intensive. Um, <clears throat> but still at that point, I like the whole idea of actually building a bike was like, I didn't even, couldn't even really conceive of that. So I worked in a couple of bike shops, um, as a teenager and then, um, went to college for a year. That didn't really like, wasn't really my thing. I tried, I tried to to do the college thing, um, came back to Saratoga, New York, and I had a friend who worked at Serata, and he got me into the shipping department at Serrata, which was you know, the, the first place where there was even the potential of maybe learning how to build bikes. But I worked in the shipping department for two, three years before I ever touched a torch, you know, and even then, you know, growing up as a kid, I had never done metal work. I had done some woodworking, um, and, and done things like that. But the idea of metal work just never even, I, I never thought that that was a possibility. It just seemed like a little too complicated or a little too mystical or I, I don't know what.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so um after several years there in the shipping department uh one evening um one of the brazers stayed late and showed me how to use a torch showed me how to kind of stack brass up um and you know turn me loose with some some scrap tubing and it was just I couldn't get enough of it. I just got like transfixed by <laughs> learning how to how to lay the heat down and how to get the brass to move around and it to pull inside and um one of the first things that i made myself was a set of bar ends for my mountain bike that i still have
0: which Classic. it
1: was kind of cool to like make a thing that you could put on your bike and say like i i made that thing
0: mm-hmm. and um, one of the great things about bar ends is they're a very like they really have a date range associated with them they're like a very 90s kind of yeah. thing so they're you know it's just one of those things that's very kind of much. funny in hindsight
1: Exactly. Um, And so I was, uh, you know, the beautiful thing there was, you know, Serata had loads and loads of scrap tubing sitting around and nobody cared if I, you know, worked my normal day. And then, you know, once I punched out, I walked over and just kept playing around with a torch and and melting brass. And so it, it was a great place also because, you know, when I was doing those, that practice work, you know, like you could take it over, show a guy who braced for twenty years, and he could go, okay. Here's what you did here. You need to put your heat in a little bit differently, and so you know, much much nicer than just like being in your garage doing it and and like scratching your head and going, well, what did I do wrong here, and what did I do right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I'm really lucky to have that kind of um, you know realm to to learn. Um, the brazing techniques, um, and have that kind of guidance as well. So, yeah. um, and I was lucky to be around when, when um, for a long time, uh, Serata had been owned by an outside investor, and when Ben bought the company back in the mid '90s, he kind of asked me if I wanted to to be a part of the brazing department, and so I moved over into the brazing department and you know continued to learn and and started putting brazons on bikes and then brazing chain stays. And the beauty there is like, if you're brazing, you know, 10 pairs of chain stays every single day, it's just like that sheer repetitiveness really, mm-hmm. um, you know, forces you to learn. And you can see, you can see the learning curve going up, like pretty obviously, um, mm-hmm. Whereas if you're doing it in your garage and you do like one pair of chain every four months, it's like, what did I do
2: last time? Like, mm-hmm.
1: What was the process here? <laughs> so, I, and again, like I'm just super lucky because you know, places like that where you can do production work are pretty few and far between at this point. So really fortunate to learn in that kind of environment um, and have guys there who had been doing this for years and years teaching me Um so, you know, in the in the final few years of the '90s, I was brazing bikes at Serrata and doing some of the custom work there, um, and it was exciting. But you know, I was get, coming to kind of like a turning point in my life, and it felt like you know the millennium was sort of a turning point also.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I had always lived I had always lived in upstate New York, and I just felt like I have gotta do something different and try something different. And so I fired off an email to Waterford, who is one of the other only other places that did um, production work, production brazing. And um, they were like, "Wow, you know, we don't get too many people writing to us who already know how to braze." So
0: So were they you were definitely interested. What was it like tig welded frames and you were doing braze details or it was fully lugged construction?
1: This was when Serrata was still doing, um, they had two models that were fully brazed, the CSI oh. and the Atlanta. Yeah,
0: was, so we was, were there, doing, was there any fillet brazing, or was it all just lugged out?
1: We would do fillet braze when, you know, you, you had an unusual design where lugs wouldn't do it. Or we also did a fair amount of what we called at the time half lugs,
2: mm-hmm. or what
1: they call now um, bilaminate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so I learned both of those techniques and then I built a couple of 70 centimeter frames that were made with just straight gauge chromoly for really huge guys. And those were <clears> fully fillet braised mm-hmm. and those were always an interesting project because they, you know, they would barely fit on the, on the brazing fixtures and on the alignment table. And so, yeah, yeah it was, it was a like custom project all the way around when you had one of those. That's great. Yeah. And and so, in 2000, I I packed up my stuff and and moved to Waterford, um, mm-hmm. and and I started brazing in Waterford. And it was interesting because you know Serrata was full brass braze on just about everything, with the exception of of uh, brazons. Um, and Waterford then was a switch to doing pretty much all silver brazing. And so I got to develop kind of both of those techniques. Um, And Waterford was great. I got to, you know, branch out and do some brazing on stainless lugs. That was one of the things that excited me about going to Waterford was I saw that that was something they did custom with stainless lugs. And, and, you know, that little extra touch kind of appealed to me. Um, And so I learned how to do that. And. And as time went by at Waterford, I really kind of started pushing the boundaries a little bit in terms of just, you know, building my own personal bikes and doing some kind of extreme lug carving. Um, Some people may have seen some of the bikes that I built there um, where I did a super um, flame uh, themed bike, where all the lugs were, were welded. It was what they were welded, stainless blanks, um, that were made there. And then I carved them. I mean, I probably had 80 to a hundred hours in carving these lugs. Wow. Uh, like flames coming off the dropouts, flames, um, <laughs> you know, like licking up the seat stays and chain stays up the, up the fork. front. Yeah, it was, and it, we showed that bike at the hand belt show in two thousand seven. I think uh-huh. it was the second one, which was uh, San Jose, or the third one actually. I think we we missed the first one. We went to the, sec- the, the, the second and the third when I was at Waterford, um, and I kind of convinced Richard to do the the hand belt show, which I'm not sure if he would have done otherwise. And I built a couple of really. <laughs> Over the top bikes for both of those shows,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so that was that was fun to kind of push the boundaries there and have you know the, their facilities and have welders there who could weld up stainless blanks for me if I if I wanted to do something crazy. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: so those bikes that you brought to those shows were Waterford branded and not Ellis.
1: They were Waterford branded, yes.
0: And you, you hadn't yet developed the like the Ellis sort of brand. You probably didn't start that until later.
1: No, I guess I, you know, I hadn't really conceived of it too much. Um, you know, at the time, I was kind of happy doing my thing at Waterford and just, you know, showing up and and doing my forty hours and and going home. And we we did build kind of a cool custom uh, carved lug little niche there that I was responsible for, you know, people got the idea of, you know, when they saw some of these bikes that we were doing, we, I think right about that time was when Kirk Pacenti came out with his artisan lug set as well. Mm -hmm. So I remember the first time I got a look at those lugs, um, one of our customers in the San Francisco area had sent, sent a set of them in and I was like, wow, you know, you're just looking at this big blank, slate of like, okay, well, what can we do with these lugs? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I did a few for customers. I built a bike for myself. I think I built one that got it displayed at the, um, at interbike when, when it Waterford went in maybe 2005 or six, um, with a set of those lugs. And it was also pretty over the top stainless lugs. Um, yeah, so that was fun and it kind of kept me engaged um, but by 2008, I was kind of like, I feel like I've done everything I can do at Waterford, mm-hmm. and so that was sort of the the point where I felt like I needed to strike out and and do my own thing. It was sort of like the last logical step after the ten years at Water at Serata and Waterford. So, yeah. in February of 2008, I left Waterford and kind of just started putting, putting things together for Ellis and trying to find a big flat plate and a fixture. And it was, uh, it was sobering
2: mm-hmm. and,
1: uh, also not the best timing. Oh yeah. I guess I wasn't watching, I wasn't watching the global markets as closely <laughs> as I should have because <laughs> 2008 like started out maybe not too bad, but, uh, later in the year, Uh, when the crash happened, you know, it was just about the time I was kind of starting to get a little bit of traction. Yeah. And it kind of got got really quiet for a winter. And thankfully, there's a shop in Milwaukee here, uh, Ben Cycle. And I had a good relationship with those guys. And I, you know, spent some time putting in hours there and kind of eking by. And my wife at the time worked a lot of overtime and we we squeaked by and and thankfully um, made it through that first year or two that, and uh, made it to the Handbuilt Show in 2009, mm-hmm. um, where i brought I brought my fir- the first of my modern classic model,
2: mm-hmm. which
1: was uh, kind of an iconic model for me. I don't know how many people know about it, but it's, it's stainless headlugs. They're carved with little teardrops has my signature dropouts it has a stainless rear triangle um at the time it had a chromed fork although now i do stainless forks
2: mm-hmm.
1: um so it it had that look of like the classic 70s steel bike with chrome but with modern tubing modern lugs and you know not as much to need for chrome which was really cool yeah, um, and much wider and more lively, you know, high, high strength too. Um, and that bike like won an award. I won best lug bike that year, which was kind of blew me away. Um, especially given <laughs> the two bikes I had built at, with with Waterford and brought to those first two hand-built shows were way more technically difficult to build than that bike.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And yet, yeah. <laughs>
0: so, there, but there's there's but something to great. be said for restraint and taste, though. You know, it's like just because it's simpler yeah. doesn't mean that it's less. You know, it's like it, it requires the eye of of like a an, an artist who really understands sensibility and proportion to do something simple with that degree. I mean, I'm looking at the photos of it now, and I remember seeing... Well, it's <laughs> it's of your style, but I remember seeing it in the past, yeah. too. And it's just like there's a difference between doing something simple... In a mediocre way and doing something simple in a really quite exceptional way. And I think this is simpler by comparison, but it's beautiful.
1: Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think that the flame bike, especially that I built with Waterford, was a bit of a cry for help. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I was trying really, really hard to win an award at, at the handout Show. And so. <laughs>
2: Uh-huh. whether
1: for better or worse. But it was definitely like a, it was an amazing experience in terms of just like technical, like l- learning how to do like incredibly difficult brazing. Um, but it was like, it, it was also heartening. Like when I started Waterford, it, you know, it, it was always, it, it's tricky when you're starting out, like wh- what are my, what are Ellis cycles going to look like? You know, what does an iconic Ellis cycles look like when you've yeah. only built one Ellis cycle? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I brought a lot of, I had like a pretty wide range of, you know, ideas and techniques that I'd, I'd learned it's like, okay, how do I now distill these down into what this is going to look like? And when you first start your business, you get a lot of people because you're new, they don't know exactly what you do. So they're kind of pushing the boundaries too of like, well, can you do this? Can you, can you build me a, you know, a, a tricycle with lugs and you know, whatever. And so Mm
2: -hmm.
1: it's like a combination of me kind of pushing back and saying like, this is what I do. And then, and then finding the materials that I like. And you know, I felt like the, the modern classic was a really early, you know, where it coalesced into something was like, okay, this really like feels right to me. This is the these are the this is the aesthetic of the bike that I kind of dreamed of as a kid drawing pictures in art class, mm-hmm. and now I can actually build it and use these modern modern materials. And so, you can buy this bike and put modern parts on it, but it looks like a classical old bike, and it has that like really familiar, awesome ride of a steel bike. And so that really felt right to me. Um, finally, getting to have that blend come together
0: yeah absolutely it's got the panel paint job between the c-tube panel and the head tube being white and it has obviously lugs and is that a level top tube or is that a slight slope to it
1: you know they started out mostly level or i could i would be able to tweak them a couple of degrees um Because that lug set was obviously designed for a level top tube.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, The beauty of the lug set that I used probably 95% of the time is that as the years have gone by, I realized that they actually make a set with five degrees built in. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So I can, and I have a couple of different options for head lugs and bottom brackets. Um, But the seat lug is an interesting piece. Um, a lot of people recognize like that fastback seat stay style that I do onto that lug. And the interesting part about that is that lug was the lug we used on Serrata Atlantis. It had a little, little esque, um, you know, cast into the side. Um, that's the only difference really. And I built so many of those, <laughs> at the time i was like man if i never see another one of these lugs again <laughs> i will be perfectly happy with that and wow. then the, the irony that this is kind of like <laughs> you know 10 years later i find that i'm building building like pretty much all my bikes with that lug and it's like a signature piece of uh, that's what funny Ellis is kind of interesting um but it does work with that, you know, I have a, a lug set where I can do an inch eighth head tube. And then I have, you know, I have that C lug that I can get in both a level and sloping style. So I can do, I can cover a ton of ground with that set. Um, and I yeah. even use them on my like gravel bikes where I can, you know, kind of blacksmith the bottom bracket to get curves, curved chain stays to work. Wow. And then, you can use up to like a 2.1 inch tire in the back. And so it, it's fun to carry that aesthetic through like all of these different um, varieties of bikes.
0: Um, yeah. That's wild. That I uh, uh, when I had Chris Bishop on the podcast, couple of years ago now but yeah he used the term lug jail which i was unfamiliar with and it's a very i love that term <laughs> like being stuck in lug jail <laughs> uh oh, but,
1: what does this mean like that you you're like stuck with the yeah whatever the angle you just yeah you're confined
0: you you're confined you're trapped you're incarcerated with these these 73 degree angles they're giving you
1: <laughs> yeah i you know one of the things that's nice about all the years that i spent at Waterford was I got really good at pushing the limits of what you could do with a given lug angle.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, like how you can kind of like carve the inside of the lug a little bit to squeak out a little extra degree or two here. And then depending on which way you're bending it, well, maybe we'll bet like cold set it a little bit and then like tweak the points a bit. And so even the, even the level set that I started out using, I could get probably three degrees out of those, wow. you know, if I was really pushing it. And so it, it's a, it's a challenge <laughs> to to work with that. It's obviously like it'd be much easier to just do pop the thing in and do straight 73s. It's like the silver likes that better. It's easier to do all the way around, but I got good at, at pushing the limits of what I can do with lugs and, because the legs have a fairly long point, I can I can bend them and get them to, to you know, come back up to the tube and, and meet with the tube right. And then, like, I can do some finishing afterwards. So, like, you know, if I've done my job right, you don't realize that I've done that. But yeah, um, I was always trying to get a little bit of, you know, what I found was almost everybody, in spite of the fact that a lot of people like the way level top teams look, almost everybody could benefit from a little upslope on the top tube <laughs> yeah whether it's making that making the head tube a little bit longer without needing like a giant extension or tons of spacers or something or allowing you to like shorten the seat tube a little bit it's just like it just makes things easier <laughs> yeah so you don't end up with that like one inch of seat post sticking out you mm-hmm. know with the seat there yeah in order to get the handlebars right so Absolutely. and that was part of my aesthetic it was I really want the bike to look like you know, it had the final position in mind. So when I'm doing fits with people, what I'm basically doing is figuring out like three contact points, like bottom bracket, handlebar, like basically the stem where the handlebar clamps and the seed. And if I can get those three points in space, then I'm going to like, okay, how do I connect the dots here and make it look like, this is a cohesive hole and not like we built a bike and then we put, you know, 80 millimeters, 80 millimeters of spacers in to get the stem yeah, in the right place.
0: Absolutely.
1: And so that is is a big part of, you know, what I do in trying to make bikes that at the end are, are a cohesive hole. And definitely as the years have gone by, I do more and more um, complete bikes finished, you know, fully built up. Mm -hmm. in the beginning i was doing more just frames and then people would take them and do their own thing with them but i definitely enjoy that part of the process of like just from start to finish like you're getting a complete finished unit and it's gonna look right and it's gonna fit you right as well yeah yeah that appeals to me a lot
0: big time and i mean the yeah, like integrating the parts. I had that once or twice. I built a frame for a buddy or something, and then later I get photos, and there's a mile ahead headset spacers. And I was like, oh, I, uh, okay. <laughs> you know, like. Like you know the point it's like way up and then the stem is angled way up too and it's like oh wow okay like if I look at that as someone who understands a little bit about bike geometry and bike fit the first thing that pops into my Mm -hmm. head is says that frame isn't really the right geometry for what he's trying to do with it and he's compensating and so now I think like this is how everybody else is looking at it and they assume that I designed it like an idiot or else I would have designed around those things and so it's a little bit embarrassing for me you know and and not only that but It's just it doesn't look proportional or something, but
1: I know it it, it hurts your heart a little bit. <laughs> like, every bike you send out into the world is, you know, it's a little bit of a ref, reflection on you. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, you you want every everyone to go out and and, and be a good representation,
0: right? So, um, yeah. And sometimes too, like you know, somebody puts gaudy parts on it or something, but because that's kind of hard when yeah. you are just getting. For me, anyway. When I was just getting started, which was my whole frame building career, I never really was. I was. I was only in the getting started phase before I started doing more machining oriented stuff and selling tools. But, mm-hmm. but anyway, a lot of times you're selling a bike frame to a buddy or something, and and they, like you know they're kind of getting a deal and they're not really going to put the best parts kit on it, and so it just it doesn't speak as well of your work as you might like. And that was always it. Kind of hurt my heart a little bit, you know, but hurt my ego yeah. maybe to. No. I like the 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 toil yeah. that I, I put in. I there's always
1: it. some extent of that. It's like the balancing act of like, okay, do I do I refuse to build a bike for somebody uh-huh. if they're going to build it up in a weird way, or if it's <laughs> going to be a, so it's yeah, it, it's a balancing act uh, right. of like, yeah. what do I want to have out in the world that has my name on it? Yeah, um, I think a lot of customers approach you and with the with the the customer is always right ethos mm-hmm. in their mind and. You know, if you're building a small business, it's you know, and especially one that's that's kind of, you know, has a, a coolness factor to it. You know that that it, it all plays into it, and, and people do pay attention. So yeah, yeah. I, I I hope that when people look at bike look at my bikes, they feel like they're getting that vibe of like that's a well put together bike, and that was well designed and well thought out before it you know, before I started cutting any of the tubes
0: you know? yeah i I mean I get that vibe especially you know like I'm on your website right now as we're talking and um and so I'm sure that the the photos you choose to host on your website are like you know the better representations the ones that went the way you liked yeah. probably but but I yeah. mean as I look through these I'm like wow these are these are really you know there's a clear like style and aesthetic and there's a lot of intention it's like very obvious that there's a lot of intentionality
1: yeah and that's one of the things that i really enjoy when i you know i haven't done as many shows the last few years and that just seems like it's kind of flagging but i always enjoyed going to shows and having people come into the booth and look at the bikes and just be like oh that's really cool and then you know two hours later they come back with their friend and they'd be like you go check check out this bike and they look at it and then they'd see something else and they're like oh mm-hmm. man this is really cool and you know i think some parts on the bike for some builders it's just like oh i'm putting this bridge in here because like you know bikes need bridges but it's like i've built so many bikes at this point and, and without trying to sound like a pretentious you know guy <laughs> like there's there's nothing that goes on the bike that I haven't like put thought into, yeah. you know? So it's like, I'm putting that bridge in a certain way and it's a certain diameter and it's, you know, located in a certain place because yeah. of all the other bikes that have come before that. And so I love it when people like come back and see those extra little details and that, and they're like, oh, that's really cool that you thought of that, or like, oh, that that bottle cage underneath the downturn is like offset a little bit to the non-drive side so that it doesn't hit the chain rings. Like, wow, like, that's a really good idea.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, there's just a ton of, you know, it, the the 25 years that I've been building bike frames, which, you know, even to say that seems a little <laughs> unreal, but I'm like, yeah. yeah, that all, like, it's still down into your... LS. When
0: you get that bike, yeah, I um, I wanted to ask a technical question. I see on that that I think it's that first modern classic frame, but it also looks like you have it on a bunch of your frames where the seat stay attachment method. It looks like on this one, it was stainless seat stays that you know maybe two thirds of the way up toward the seat lug, it's sleeved into presumably a a steel tube, so the stainless is polished. Mm -hmm. The what I'm assuming is a steel tube is painted, and then there's a small little mm-hmm. fillet as it attaches to the to like the back ears of the seat lug binder area. Um, what mm-hmm. what do you do in terms of fillet brazing or attaching that to the seat lug? Um, is that silver brazed? Do you use fillet pro? Is that bronze brazed? How do you what, what do you like to do for that?
1: That one I've been using um fillet pro. Obviously, back when I was doing that at Serada, it was Brass brazed on there,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, but since I'm since I'm um, silver brazing the seat lug, I'm typically doing a seat lug with 56, percent but then I'll do Philip Pro um, to get the seat stays onto the lug there. Um, but the sleeve seat stays was an interesting project, yeah. Because um, you've done that on a number that, of
0: bikes, quite a few bikes, right?
1: Yeah, and that's a very much a distinctive like modern classic feature, um, but it stems out of Like those '70s bikes that were my, my inspiration for that bike, you know, they were typically like a big portion of the rear end of the bike, or maybe even the whole frame would have been fully chromed. And then they would just arbitrarily like, okay, we're going to like tape this off here and then paint starts. And inevitably what would happen is like, you know, like a little rock would kick up and because paint doesn't stick to chrome very well, the paint would just start chipping off. And you're like, or just the fact that like, when you'd run your finger up the seat day, when you'd go from chrome to paint, it's like, there's this big edge basically there. Mm-hmm. And it just always looks kind of clunky. So I'm like, how can I do this where it's like a definitive transition from, you know, paint to stainless or paint to chrome, you know, from that polish to, to paint. And so I did this on, um, the flame lugged bike where I had flames kind of licking up the seat stays where they went from from stainless to
0: wow to paint,
1: but um on my on the modern classics, obviously it was a little simpler, but I decided to do that kind of nice you know the long points on the inside and the outside, and then i I followed it up with that little um teardrop, which mimics the teardrops in my dropouts, so on a modern classic, you've got probably you know, 13 or 14 little eardrops in various parts of the bike. Um, And it just carries that theme through. And and to me, that's what I I really appealed to me was not trying to like stick some stainless stuff on the bike after I built it, but like have all of those elements be part of the design um, and sort of integral to the bike and, and then have that beauty just be, you know, simple, but, but, you know, a coherent whole
0: yeah. No, it's good. I, I really like the, the look of these. Um, and I mean all your bikes too, that I just think you have a, a way of making bikes look good, but, but it's like integrating all these details in a way that it's like, you don't even look at like you kind of what you're saying in the booth, you know, it's like, you don't even see it at first and then you kind of look a little bit longer yeah. and like, you just keep noticing little details.
1: Yeah. And it's, I've gotten better at it, but like the first couple of times I did those sleep seat stays, it's, it's, it's kind of a pain in the butt. So I'm taking like the tape, the tapered part of a, of a double tapered 14 millimeter seat stay. And then I'm like cutting that off at the right point and then grinding it down a little bit. So it will actually slide inside that, that stainless seat stay, um, but not be so loose that it obviously like slides right down inside of it. And so, it's, de- it's definitely a technical challenge, and it, and and without a lot of machinery, I'm pretty much doing this stuff all by hand and on a belt sander or using my dinophiles. files. So,
0: so it's, uh, I've
1: streamlined it a bit over the years, but it's tricky.
0: That's pretty wild. And where you have, you said that's like a 14 millimeter stainless tube.
1: Uh, you know, when I started out, I think the only um, stainless seat stays I could get were 16, so I may have been using 16 millimeter double tapers, yeah. and then like cutting those off at a, you know in the taper basically, so it would it would slide inside there. Wow. Um, thankfully now I can get 14s, which I kind of prefer, and you know unless somebody's really huge, I really like like light, lightweight seat stays. I think it just gets a little nicer ride quality and and looks more classic to me.
0: Yeah. The just looking at how with that the carving that you do on the photos I'm looking at on your modern classic page, maybe some of these are 16s, maybe some are 14s. I can't tell by eye, but like uh, they look more yeah. like sixteens maybe, but I'm not sure. Maybe they're different on different ones. But anyway, the way that you would carve that in my head, I'm just thinking like you have these small little like a jewelers file or needle file or something. And the frustrating thing when you're trying to file something where you can only you, you only have the file stroke until you hit the back side of the tube. <laughs> you hit the other side of the tube. Yeah. How do you even carve those? Are you are you using like a Dremel, like a rotary tool, Fordham tool? Like how are you carving out that the shape there?
1: Yeah. So one of the things that I learned, uh, doing all the flames was I got really good at uh, using a die grinder. Um, so I do most of that with a die grinder and then a very, very little bit of just final, um, shaping up of of the lines with a, with a file. Um, but most of it is with a, a little tapered, um, tapered carbide on a on a die grinder oh yeah and so
0: like the carbide bird
1: tricky because like yeah you can yeah. you can mess up a seat stay pretty fast <laughs> if you're not careful
0: those so uh like
1: you know that's the morning when you you like lay off the coffee
0: uh-huh. and
1: then, uh don't you gotta have pretty steady hands for sure
0: um those carbide burrs that you use on a grinder like that create the most mm-hmm. miserable little chips if you get those things in your socks or oh, something oh man oh the oh, worst in your
1: fingers yeah, <laughs> yeah. no i I've, i'm often sharpening up little pieces of brass brazing rod to pick those little guys out of my fingertips and oh, they man. yeah they they are sharp as heck
0: yeah yeah Okay, well, that's really helpful uh, if I get into it. Well, more likely listeners of this show will derive value of that from me, but I would love to do a carved, sleeved-up bike again at some point. Um, yeah. Very cool. What are your uh, – if if somebody said, hey, Dave, uh, I'm looking for some stainless steel polishing tips, where would you wh- – what are, like, the key things that, that you keep in mind that make polishing stainless happen? <laughs>
1: Oh man. Is that uh, I assume
0: there's a lot of hours that goes into bringing that to a, like a mirror finish.
1: Yeah, it's it's not it's probably the least fun part of the whole process of any process. <laughs> I might enjoy doing my taxes more than wow. than polishing painless. It's <laughs> it's just I mean, there's no easy way around polishing. You know, you've got to do a whole bunch of different grits and you know frankly if you if you screw up and you don't do a good enough job with a certain grit and you go on to the next one too soon you'll get to that end point where you're like okay i'm going to put the compound on my little cotton pad and i'm going to shine it all up and then you're like oh i have got these big deep scratches in here that i'm like polishing deep scratches now and so yeah it's it's just straight up toil so <laughs> I don't really know how, how else to describe it. Um, I know, uh, I don't know how many folks follow Daryl Lou um, in Australia. Yeah. He does a ton of polishing and he is as good at, at it as anybody I know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he, he posts a lot of pictures of the process and it's just, yeah, it's hard. It was like, it's hard on your body to be bent over and, you know, polishing away. It's hard on your fingers. It's just, yeah, it's no fun, but it does look awesome when you're done.
0: It absolutely does. Are the, are the tubes relatively simpler and the cast lugs and stuff are where more of the time is spent or how, how does that break out?
1: Yeah, cast lugs definitely take a little bit, but although it depends, you know, some of the tubing like 953 is really, really hard. So if, I, I do have a polisher that I work with sometimes who will do like, you know, do tubes for me. Um, and this is a guy who does like industrial polishing. Um, he is polished like dump trucks. Um, so <laughs> wow. this is his wife is polishing. And so sometimes if I've got a bike where I'm doing a lot of, um, polishing, what I'll do is have him pre polish the tubes. Oh, and then okay. my job is, okay, how do I disturb this polish as little as possible when I'm like, you know, putting the dropouts in or, you know, a lot of times I'm wrapping like masking tape around the tubes while I'm working on the bike and just being super careful about my heat. And like when I unwrap it at the end, hopefully I don't have to do a ton of polishing on those, the big open areas. I'm really just concentrating more on the, the lugs and the, you know, those transition points. And, and that's where it's really tricky is like, you know, where you're not, you know, like blending your points down into the tube and losing some of the definition of, of the lugs. And, and on the seat stays where you're working with, like, a very thin seat stay, you've got to be super careful not to, like, come off the end of those points and just have them, have them like, disappear into the tube. Because the painter's not going to be happy about that either.
0: hmm <laughs> So... Man, that's uh it's getting me tired just thinking about all that hard work.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of a lot of uh breathing and a lot of dust unless you got you've got some good dust mass.
0: So, yeah.
1: Yeah. It's it's still it's not the funnest part of the job.
0: Do you do you integrate I mean I I was on the modern classic page, not every bike you do has stainless. Mm-hmm. Right. Is, is it is how many of the bikes that you do have big polished you know, swaths of the bike frame.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, and nowadays i uh, like this modern classic is probably the most obvious one. I occasionally will build, if you look on the website, there's a model called the Strata Enox and there's a Voyager Enox, which are, you know, have more stainless on them. So it's like the top two. Two were stainless rear triangle. Stainless. Um, and those bikes, you know, like I said, I'll have, have him pre-polish the tubes for me, so it's less of that, like, you know, just sitting there, like, going up and down a tube. Um, and I don't do as many of those nowadays, um, and that's really more just, you know, what people are ordering. Um, but when when folks call me and ask, like, okay, this modern classic, bike, it's really awesome, I love the way it looks, um, you know, I have to say, like, it doesn't ride any better than my my Strata model, mm-hmm. which is kind of like I hate to say basic, but it's like kind of the entry level model.
2: Mm-hmm. Where
1: I'm still using like high strength, um, you know, tubing, thin walled, um, but it it doesn't. The stainless tubing, as much as the tubing manufacturers want to tell you, like oh, this has some sort of magical ride quality to it, you know given the same wall thickness and tube diameters, it's going to ride the exactly the same as a regular steel tube. So I can build you a strata that will ride just as good as that modern classic, but it's just not going to look, you know, and have that, that same look to it. But that huge jump in price is just pure, like hours in the shop. You know, It it's like it's tools because that stainless tubing and stainless stuff just through um, cutting tools, yeah. um, you know, and, and through memory cloth, I And mean, it's just, it's just harder to work with. And so, you know, when, it, when I first made that model and showed it at the show and it won an award, I was like, okay, clearly if people are going to order this, <laughs> some people are, I have to make this worth my time so that I'm not going to like, every time I take an order for one, I'm going to be like, oh like yeah. I'm just getting crushed by this bike it has to be worth it when I put that thing in a box at the end and actually you know I get paid for the hours that I put into that bike
0: so, yeah absolutely yeah and I mean I yeah. think I think it's a it's a unique enough offering and it looks remarkable and you know if they don't want to pay for it they they have other options too I exactly. think that's a, yeah. it's absolutely the right way to like approach it is uh you know make it an option and yeah. yeah i want I've had
1: people take where they just wanna do stainless head lugs and you know or stainless yeah. head lugs and a fork one you know? and yeah I mean, so you can kind of go a little a la carte or you just want to have the lug carving and on a painted a fully painted bike, so that's you know there's a lot of ways to get like a few of those touches and not have to get like the the whole the whole enchilada, so to
0: speak mhm- um I notice on a lot of your frame sets and bikes, uh, you have a painted to match stem. Are you uh, fabricating stems in many cases or ever, or is it just, uh, you know, matching the paint to the stem?
1: Yeah, I did a handful of stems early on. Um, the bike that actually won Best in Show in 2010 at the handle show had a custom stem, and it was the, I think it was Daryl Lou you know, stem lugs that he designed. Um, I haven't really pushed that side of the business just because I understand the aesthetics. I am i don't really have a great fixture for doing that.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: it's just a ton of work. And I feel like most people at the end of the day, when you tell them how much it actually costs to do with them, they're like, hmm. I don't need it that bad. Yeah. So, <laughs> I kind of felt like, and I have nothing against guys who build custom stems. There are some guys out there building lovely custom stems, but I, I kind of feel like it's the answer to the question no one asked a little bit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, there there are great stems out there. And I do feel like just painting a, a, a you know, off the shelf stem. And most of the time I use Richie stems just because they're like at, at the time, at least they offered like a fairly, hmm, I don't know how to say it. (laughs) It looked fairly plain. You know, it didn't have a lot of like weird, like where you'd be able to see, like even in spite of the paint, you'd be like, okay, that's like an XYZ stem. You know, it just looked like a fairly basic stem. And then as soon as you painted it, it's like, oh, it just kind of pulls it together into this bike. Um, A lot of parts, I think also have such huge logos on them, and yeah. because my my fr- are like the logos are fairly understated on my frames. Yeah, it always killed me when I would like put a wheel set on, or sometimes even tires. and yeah. I'm like, Oh, logo, logo on the tire is bigger than my logo.
0: I hate that. So
1: <laughs> I'm always like, okay, how can we like downplay that as much as possible? And have the bike be the centerpiece, and then everything else is just kind of playing off of that. So that's one of the reasons why I a lot of times I'll push people toward a, you know painted to match
0: them. So, yeah, yeah. They're pulls things together. They're absolutely yeah. Like tires with big obnoxious logos. I just don't like big logos on stuff. It's it's a it's a hard sell.
1: Yeah, and then, you know for years I've spent. Spent my time like peeling the logos off of things, you know. Mm. Provided you could do that, like oh, this rims—it's just a sticker. Like, oh, I'll peel that off, and then I'll get the goo gone and clean off all the residue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, two hours later, I'm like, okay, I got those logos off.
0: <laughs> uh huh.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, I've done that a fair amount myself. Um, yeah. I wanted to, so I've been building a list here of questions, and and we can steer this discussion in any direction, but. Um, I know one thing I remember, I don't know if you had a, if it was a blog or if it was a flicker feed, but I remember following your work many years ago and seeing about the dropouts that you had made that I, it looks Mm -hmm. like ones you still do. They're like a stainless plate style dropout with, you know, sort of little reliefs like ovals or some shape cut into them. Maybe the teardrop shape. Um, what's the story with those?
1: So it goes way, way back Um, this is even before I worked at Serrata, I think the first time I saw these dropouts was, uh, well, I saw, uh, uh, but sort of the inspiration for these dropouts was a set of GP Wilson dropouts Mm
2: -hmm. on
1: a fat city slim chance. I think it was called at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, and they were just like an interesting little dropout where instead of like most dropouts just had one window, if they had a window at all. But these kind of had a window on both tabs, and I was like, oh, I don't know why. That just like really resonated with me. And then during the period of time I was at Serrata, um, the outside investor who owned Serrata bought Fat City. I don't know how many people know about this, but they yeah. moved Fat City from Somerville to Glens Falls. Mm-hmm. So there was a period of, I don't know, probably five or six years where we were building Fat cities in that same facility and so you know they brought along all the stuff from fat city and like a few of those dropouts were kind of kicking around and so i got my hands on a set and literally the first frame i built myself which was a cross frame i used those dropouts and they were stainless steel and they were i remember reading in a bicycle guide (laughs) issue where they were going to stop using them. Fat City was going to stop using them because they required a ton of finish work. Mm-hmm. And I, I totally understood because the casting was very irregular and it had a, some weird areas where it yeah, just hard to describe, but it did require a ton of finishing work and they were stainless. And so they had to be silver braised. And so I came up with a whole special design so I could just, you know, flow silver into these guys but it was a real learning experience for me with the way silver reacts to heat, you know, because I'd been doing all brass brazing at Serrata. And so silver is just much trickier to deal with. Um, but I still have that bike like hanging in my garage downstairs with those GP and dropouts in it. So, you know, I, I built that bike and, and years go by now and I go to Waterford and, um, I think it was 2006 I was building a bike the first year we went to the hand show in San Jose. Um, I built a bike that was um, inspired by our English bike called an F grave. Um, most people probably haven't heard of an F grave. Um, I had built a similar bike for a, a customer who had just like sent us pictures from the classic rendezvous site. And it was interesting. I, I looked at these these lugs. I know I'm getting a little off topic from dropouts, but
2: mm-hmm. the
1: lugs were really interesting in that they were very fancy, but then the more you looked at them, the more you realized that like each element kind of like flowed through this lug. Like this element flows into the next element. Um, and it, what at first just looked like pure gaudiness kind of was like, okay, this has a vibe to it. Uh-huh. And, you know, I I think of, like, the other bike that pops into my head is, like, a Hetchum's, where you're like, oh yeah, we're just making these lugs, like, they go halfway down the tube, and it's like, there's no real rhyme or reason to it. They just are gigantic for no, you know, just, like, so that you can have the biggest lugs on the block. And I feel like the upgrades were a little more subtle than that. And so after I built the bike for for a customer, I decided, like, okay, for the show, I'm going to do that same design. And, you know, I'm looking at each element. I'm looking at the seat lug, the head lugs, and then I'm going to get to the dropouts and I'm like, wouldn't it be cool if I could make like a version of those GP Wilsons, but a little, a little like even more um, refined, I guess, or like just, you know, I kind of let my mind go on like, what would these look like? And so I literally got a piece of plate stainless and I'm not a machinist at all. So I I literally, like, used an eighth-inch drill bit to, like, perforate the plate stainless.
2: Wow. To, like, cut
1: these things out. And then, like, opened up those windows and, like, cut the d- dropout out and then used my Dynafile to, like, smooth things out and braised washers on for the dropout faces. And literally, like, so, so I literally <laughs> carved these things out of, like, a plate of stainless for that first bike, um, and and that was kind of like okay. Once I did that, you know, when I did leave two two years later, I'm like okay, that is. Eventually, I want to make that my dropout design, um, and amazingly, I, I kind of thought like okay, this is like probably a year out or more, um, but when I'm, one of one uh, of my friends was a CAD guy. And he's like, oh no, man. He's like, give me kind of like your, your, um, napkin drawing of these and I'll turn it into a CAD drawing. And he's like, I even know places that do water jet cutting. And he's like, I'll get a bunch of cut for you. And so literally by the third bike I built, I had my own dropouts, wow. um, which was, was really cool. And it did, you know, I think it really resonated with people when they saw those, they're like, this is you know there was a lot of this was 2008 2009 and a lot of guys were like making dropouts with their with letters in them and like trying to make them just really over the top so they'd be very um distinctive and have their brand name written you know integrated into them or whatever and mm-hmm. I I wasn't trying to do that but I did want it to be distinctive and I feel like it, it's, it's kind of stood the test of time in that respect um my only regret now is that I don't get to use them as much um, because I'm doing more disc brake bikes and they they don't really lend themselves <laughs> to being through axles and flat mount disc brakes and such.
0: But. Yeah. So, are all of the ones, did you ever get any CNC machined or they were always just water jet cut?
1: they are always been water jet cut and then, and they're just straight flat plates. And wow. so, all the. Um, faces on those are, I just braze thing with washers on. And I found that like, it's actually not that hard once you've done, <laughs> done it a few hundred times. Yeah. And it just saves me a ton of money because it would be so many more process, so many more steps in that process to get yeah. them made with, with the reliefs. Um, And yeah. one of the things that amazed me was <laughs> the guy who does the polishing for me, he'd done it for probably five or six years and he never realized that those were, were washers that were braised on.
0: That's funny. So,
1: like, wow, I must be doing a pretty good job. <laughs> you can't even <laughs> tell <laughs> that those are brazed on. That's so. funny.
0: I, uh, just looking yeah. at those, I don't have an up-close photo handy, but I just, I know, like, if you buy dropouts from Paragon Machine, even though they're plate, they do some machined chamfers, and it really kind of looks nice. Now, sometimes the mm-hmm. proportions of the off-the-shelf dropout don't work the way that you want them to, you know, seat stay angles, chain stay angles, or I I'm, I'm not really a fan of the, the slot and tab method. It's not that it's always bad, but it is hard to integrate and make it look really, really nice unless everything is yeah. done perfectly. And, um, it's, I just find it, it's challenging. And so anyway, having the machine chamfers in there can definitely give the shape a little bit more dimension and a little bit more of a finished look, how much, like, finish work do you do? Do you do any file work to kind of, like, uh, you know, put sort of a chamfer on the edges or something?
1: Oh, there's, a t- like, tons of um, finish work. So if uh, <laughs> I could probably send you a, a raw picture of these dropouts. Mm-hmm. The tabs are pretty huge, and by design. The, the, the chainstay tab is huge because the old 953 chainstays, the minor end was kind of gigantic.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so I had to have a drop up, to go, you know, because it was a stainless drop and I knew I was going to be doing full, full polished. I wanted it to meet up with that chainstay. And so, um, you know, a normal chainstay is probably, you know, 12 and a half on the end. These things were, I don't know, 15, 16 millimeters. Wow. And so, they were really tricky to work with, and they would have huge open reveals and This is before Philip Pro too, so I was filling that in with with fifty six percent silver and It was a tricky process <laughs> where, where all those years of filling in in reveals at Serrata came in handy um I have a few tricks <laughs> for doing that um, and then, as time went on um i've i've you know and I've gotten different different change days but um, the seat stay tab is the really the tricky one. It's really wide, and it allows me to carve it away and not have seat stays look dog legged, you
2: mm-hmm. know. And
1: I can position that the the way that I do the um, end treatment on my seat stays to mate to that. I can really adjust that um, to the the angle of the seat stay, so I can do anything like from a very small bike up to a really large bike with those dropouts, and still have it look like it's it's right but the the downside is i do it do a ton of of finishing mm-hmm. you know and grinding off the, the excess stainless so a lot of times i'll dry fit the seat stays up you know i'll mark the lines of you know and it, it also if you look at those it's it's a really long slot on the seat stay in order to get it to um made up to that teardrop So I'll mark with some lines and then I'll like pop the chainstay out of the fixture and I'll grind it down and get it pretty close. So I'm not doing all that grinding after the bike is built. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's definitely, you know, it's a labor of love in order to to get that look on on the bikes. And probably if I was going to do it now, I would maybe come up with a way of doing this that doesn't require quite as much handwork, but it's, it's, I I feel like it's worth it. It's really like one of the most distinctive parts of, of my blanks.
0: Yeah, no, they look great. And uh do you know yeah. what alloy of stainless is at three oh four?
1: No, it's seventeen
0: four. Okay, that makes it's sense. Yeah, that's stronger.
1: Really, really tough stuff. Yeah. Yeah. One of the fun one of the fun things was uh in two thousand ten, I think maybe, um at the handbelt show, um, Peter Weigel was one of the judges and he came around and he's like, boy, Dave. And I, I, I really appreciate Peter. I, I've talked to him a, a number of times at, at, um, some vintage shows and also at the hand Belt show. And, and I really treasure like the, the times I have gotten to chat with him. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm really worried about your dropouts, Dave. <laughs> I'm worried that those are going to break. And I was like, yeah, I appreciate your concern, <laughs> but <laughs> I've actually had I've had had chain stays and seat stays crack before the dropout um, cracks when I, like while I'm building. If I don't get them bent, I have to bend the tabs before I I them onto the seat stays and chain stays.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, because if I like braised them in straight and then tried to bend them, I would just break them right out of the slots in the chain stays and seat stays, which I've done. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty painstaking process, but I'm like, basically what I told him is, man, there are things that keep me up at night, <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: but those dropout breaking is not one of them because they are tough as nails. And to this day, I've been in business 15 years. I've never had one of those dropouts break that I know of.
0: Yeah. You know, oh, and you would, you would probably hear yeah. about it. And I remember... Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong. I think I remember reading on your blog, or maybe it was a Flickr thing, but somewhere I read you had when you were talking about those many, many years ago, and you said that that was a common concern that people would express that they didn't think it looked, you know, the other critical engineers, right? The engineers in the comments section right. are telling you that they don't think that it looks strong enough. And and I remember you said something about how you know, like uh, a classic example, like you're you're working at a bike shop, you see some. some people come in with a bike frame and it's broken at the dropouts. And I think you had suggested that commonly that you thought the reason that that would happen was because somebody had put like a wider hub, you know, it's like a 120 or 126 spaced classic road bike. They had flared out the dropouts yeah. and they had never used an H tool to realign the dropout faces parallel to each other. And now with the mm-hmm. clamp load of the quick release skewer, they're always they're they're kind of being flexed the whole time as you're riding. And I think you had suggested yeah, that you, you thought that was more of a cracking likelihood that than anything else. Well
1: yeah, and I've even I've even had you know, if there was a period of time where um Rivendell I don't know if they still do this, but they were building bikes at one thirty two point five so that you could use a one thirty or a one thirty five <laughs> hub in uh-huh. that bike and I'm like, uh <laughs> so now you've got like this frame that's never gonna be happy. It's like it's either getting flexed one way or it's getting flexed the other way. Yeah. And so yeah, it, people that yeah, you think like, okay, this is no big deal to just kind of stretch the rear end of my bike a little bit and open it up. But, you know, you're riding it around and all that bike wants to do is like, I've got this stress that's like, as soon as you put that quick release on, it just flexes it down and it's got that stress built. in, And then it's like, all it wants to do is relieve that stress. And like one of the highest stress parts of any bike is like right where the dropout goes into the drive side chainstay. Like there's a lot of force. It's getting transmitted through that point. And so you're asking it to do a lot, and all it wants to do is go, like, please just, like, relieve this stress. So whether it breaks the dropout in the tab or breaks the chainstay, like, a little bit ahead of there, it's, like, I would say 80 to 90% of the times when I've seen those break, it's because somebody's running a non the, – the not the, the correct – um, Spacing, speed yeah. hub in the in the frame. So. Yeah,
0: and that's um. You were saying that it was hard enough to bend the chainstay to dropout connection on your stainless to stainless joints, but I would also say, in my experience, I when I'm doing TIG welding and stuff, I do like the hooded dropouts for a couple of reasons, but they are mm-hmm. ne- nearly impossible to H tool. Like like if you get like one of those yeah. wide flange Paragon hooded dropouts on like a three-quarter chainstay or something, like a non-tapered chainstay, like you got almost no chance on earth of mm-hmm. like <laughs> changing that angle once yeah. it's established.
1: I know. I, I And that's the funny thing. Like I think back to when I started, you know, we were just putting like, you know, mild steel dropouts to, you know, a steel chainstay and, and we would just braise them in straight. And then we had a fixture at Serato where we would just go over and clamp the dropout, bend it, Pop it out, cl- plant the next one, bend it. And it's like, man, bikes were so easy to build. that. <laughs> yeah, and it's like it seems like every new thing that comes along, and I, you know, some of these hurdles I've put in front of myself by, you know, making dropouts that are seventeen-four stainless and mm-hmm. flat and the whole thing. But it's like, you know, you really have to like get everything perfect, you know, and especially when you're working with stainless or these really high strength thin walled tubes. Like you can't just build a bike and then cold set it afterwards. Like it has to be straight because you just can't move those kind of those tubes around. You're going to end up like wrinkling a tube or, you know, breaking a braze joint because they just don't tolerate that. Like, you know, old Columbus SL used to.
0: Yeah. Uh, can I ask you a question about, I, I never was that expert with brazing, when it comes to 56% silver or fillet pro, and I know there are other alloys of silver than 56 too, there's 50N and whatever there is for system 48 or something, when you're making a choice or when you're looking at like different, you know, filler metal to use, you know, which kinds of joints or which kinds of, you know, like, like how, how do you choose between them, I guess? Like, what are the pros and cons?
1: Yeah, so you know this plays into the fact that I I kind of built bikes both ways, you know, with where I we did all brass brazing at Serrata. Brass is great at filling big gaps, Um, and silver just it doesn't love filling big gaps. It it can be done, but it's a heck of a lot trickier. Um, But after doing all the years at Waterford, I'm just I really do prefer silver. So if I'm doing a lugged bike, it's Really rare that I'm using anything but 56% silver on a lugged bike um, with the exception of that seat stay joint where I'm putting those uh, fastback seat stays on um, or if I'm, you know, if I'm doing a stainless bike where I'm putting can- like candy bosses on or, you know, bosses for like a Paul's mount or something like Paul's brakes, I-, I would use um, Fillet Pro for that because that's just a really high, sh- high-stress spot. Mhm. Um, um and and really what I'm looking at with 56% is even on those dropouts um the dropout to seat stay and chain stay joint is in in some cases on my personal bikes I won't even fill in the reveal on those it's really just like where the chain stay and the seat stay are touching you know that that fit up Mhm. And as long as that's a really good tight fit up and then you get good penetration you get like a fillet on the inside with the silver, that's where all the strength is. Like you can shove as much you know, fillet pro or or 56% into those reveals. The reveals aren't really where the strength is going to come from. Mm-hmm. It's really just like so, you know, I'm doing um, swats on those particular dropouts that are sometimes 25 millimeters long. Yeah. So I've got a ton of surface area there and then as long as they're nice and tight that's the key is that like you don't have a big gap that you're trying to fill so and i again i've never had a problem with with a failure with 56 just you know making sure it's it's clean and it gets really well penetrated um it's plenty plenty strong enough
0: yeah there was a Um, I, I, I had seen, I think in my frame building class, Doug Faddick showed us, you know, lug brazing a bike. And when we did a seat stay bridge, we silver braced it in with 56% silver and a small fillet. Mm -hmm. And I've heard that be kind of a point of contention. Some people say, well, you know, that's not strong enough that you can crack at that joint that can fail. And then I know there are lots Mm -hmm. and lots of bikes out there that get brazed in that style. Um, what are your two cents on that? Do you think that that if that were to fail, that it's more likely that the brazier didn't quite hit the mark, or do you think that uh, they're you know like what how what are your thoughts on that?
1: I think that a seed stay. I, I do all my seed stay and chain stay bridges like with with. Like I'm trying to imagine like an exception where I wouldn't. I think 99% of the time I do those with 56% silver. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever seen one of those crack. That's a, it's a, I would say a fairly unlikely spot to crack unless you didn't get good penetration. Yeah. Um, and this is something I learned at Serata. I remember, um, silver brazing some, some chain state bridges in and I did, I just did the tiniest little fillet and I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm not sure where I got that from where I thought that that was a good idea. And then they would take it over to the alignment plate, and they would actually end up cracking it. And so, you know, that, that was a learning process for me, and and thankfully that was a learning process that I got to do at Serrata and not on my own dime, where yeah. I'm cracking stuff and then to fix it or having stuff crack out in the real world. Um, but at Waterford, we did all all the bridges, the Seed State bridges. We used little tangs. Also, I'm not sure how yeah. much you've, how many Waterford you've looked at. I'm like. I braced so many of those things. It just was like second nature, um, to just like braise the, braise a little fillet and then fill the tang up and be like, boom, done. Uh, and those things were bomb proof as long as you got the silver to penetrate.
0: Yeah. So if you were doing just like, let's say, uh, you know, you you had 16 millimeter seat stays with a half inch straight gauge chromoly cross tube or something, or you had a little uh, traditional road brake bridge and you were going to 56% silver brace that in, you would just make sure to get enough silver there. Like build the, fill it up a little bit would be part of your strategy. I don't
1: think it's even necessarily building it up. If you look at, if you, if you find some pictures of the modern classics, mm-hmm. Um, I use a, a cast uh, stainless brake bridge on that one. That's kind of curved. Yeah. Um, it's a tr- <laughs> it's a really tricky piece to to miter too because it's it's not even round. It's kind of arrow shaped. Yeah. And so it's tricky to hold on to. It's tricky to file. It's tricky to dyna file. But um, I'm just trying to get a really good tight fit up. It has a lot of surface area to mate to the seat stay. And so if you can get a nice tight fit up, I don't actually try to get a lot of, I try to get good penetration with that, but I don't want to have a big fillet because fillets, silver fillets on a polished bike are just going to discolor over time. Mm -hmm. And so a a big clunky silver fillet, it's like, uh, it's just going to turn kind of black and have to get, you know, fixed and repolished at a later time. So I'm trying to make that really tight yeah and i I haven't had any issues with that, especially with that bridge because it does have so much surface area it really i mean it would be hard to have an issue with that if it's penetrated inside
0: yeah no that does have certainly looks like it has a lot more surface area here's a here's a oversimplification. Tell me if this makes sense to you. Tig welding mm-hmm. can have a really small bead because you have a really high tensile strength bond between the two parent metals and then the filler. Then bronze brazing is like a step below that still has a lot of tensile strength is really grips silver brazing. A lot of times if you need strength, you're relying a lot more on surface area, like a lug joint or a sleeve or a plug in a socket, or like in the case of your plate dropouts, the area is really helping you because that shear strength where they're overlapping tightly is where 56% silver is actually going to create a lot of strength. Uh, do you, does that kind of make sense and track with your basic understanding?
1: Uh, yeah, I think so. I think what, I mean, obviously whether I'm doing s- silver or brass, I'm just trying to get all my fit ups as tight as possible. For so sure. it's like, even though you can fill a big gap with brass, probably better not to have big gaps in the first place. So, um, yeah, you know, like when I'm mitering up my tubing, even if I'm putting it inside of a lug, you know that's it's gotta be tight because silver just doesn't it doesn't like jump across big gaps and you're never gonna know on a on a lug joint until mm-hmm. you get it back ten years later because it broke. So yeah, that I mean silver is gonna gonna flow across those tight tight joints so much better um, and it's gonna be happier and, and make a, a stronger joint. So yeah, brass you've got a little more. Um, leeway there. I've, I've definitely seen some like mediocre assembled brass braised bikes that hold together for a long time and factory built, you know, Raleigh's and Peugeot's and stuff where you're like, it doesn't look very good. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> it's 30 or 40 years old and the guys have ridden the heck out of it, so it's not falling apart. But yeah, mm-hmm. I think of it more like brass is like muffler work. <laughs> and silver is like is like jewelry work.
0: You yeah. Know? That makes sense. So
1: and there's nothing wrong there's nothing wrong with brass and like I built a crap load of brass brace bikes and you can you can build beautiful brass braised bikes. I think in a way that they're they're harder because you're way more prone to get distortion in the tubes because you're getting them so hot. You know, a lot of times the seat tubes will kind of like ovalize out if you if you're in there for too long when you're breathing yeah. your heat or you're not you're not managing your heat well, and even like the head tube, bumps, you know, holes can kind of ovalize, and, and you go to run a reamer in there, and you're like, ooh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I know so all about well. that. Yeah. So silver is like you don't have have as much risk of that, but you do have to be really, really uh, spot on with all your miters.
0: Yeah. Um, One thing I noticed looking around the Modern Classic and around your website is I like the low tight bend on your fork blades. I think Mm -hmm. um, I had a fork blade bender I used when I would make, you know, sort of lug socket steel forks. And Mm -hmm. I would do um, a little bit of a higher, more sweeping bend. And I always thought of that low tighter bend as more of like, I don't know. You'd see that on certain, I feel like older, maybe like seventies and earlier steel bikes, that was maybe more common. And then also, uh, like, I don't know, I associated it with touring bikes and things. I don't know why, but, but anyway, I think, uh, I think it looks really good on there the way that you're doing that. And, um, yeah, I mean, what, what, what tooling do you use to do that and what kind of guides your aesthetic consideration on your forks?
1: Yeah, that was an interesting, um, genesis for the the bend too because when i was working at waterford um we had like a really old school um track racing guy who had actually built some bikes um for paramount uh, years and years before and he was coming in and he was buying a track frame and he really want, had a very specific idea of how he wanted the fork to, to look and at waterford the way that we built forces we built them completely straight and then we had a bending ramp where you would bend the the fully braced fork. you bend both blades at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it was, it didn't have what I would call the most beautiful aesthetic. Like it got the job done, but it, it had a little bit of like, you know, straight fork, bend, more straight fork at the bottom kind of. Yeah. So I, I didn't love it, but like, Hey, this is how we build forks. Like if you've got a Waterford, it's probably got a fork that looks like that. Um, but this guy wanted something different and our, we had a guy that was kind of like a dedicated guy who built forks and he just kept building, I don't know if he built two or three forks and he would rake it that way. And the guy would go like, no, I don't want this. i like, why do we keep doing the same thing? <laughs> it's like, you're just going to get the same thing over and over again. So I took it upon myself. I had a, like a little bit of a woodworking shop in my basement. I went home, I like fabricated a bending ramp. And brought it in to Waterford and and tried to bend a fork blade. And like, okay, it needed a little tweaking. Like, just getting that curve exactly right and getting the, the um, relief that's in there for the fork blade to to run down and, and get bent on was just tricky. You know, like, if you don't have it just right, it kinks the blade, especially lightweight blades. So
2: mm-hmm. I
1: finally got this fork bending ramp right. I built this guy a, a fork. It was like he wanted it, where it was bent really low, well and then you cut some off the minor end, and like the, the the track dropout goes like right in there, you know. So it's like into a thicker part of the blade, kind of. And it was like a fun project for me, and he was super stoked. He's like, "Okay, this is finally like what I wanted." And so when I started Ellis, I already knew how to build a fork bending ramp. I kind of, there was a part of me that kind of wanted to take that fork ramp home with me, but obviously that wasn't going to happen. Um, so I built a ramp where I could actually, it, it had sort of a, a really tight bend, and then it like um, got a little less, uh, the radius changed as it went up. So I could clamp it in two different spots. I could clamp it really well and get the super tight bend or can't clamp it a little higher Mm -hmm. on the radius and get a a slightly less tight bend. And I went through a ton of different fork blades, testing this thing out, figuring out which fork blades I wanted to use. Um, Finally landed on, for the most part, Columbus SL blades just tended to take that bend better than others. Some blades just will kink up. You try to bend them that well. And so, yeah, that was kind of my signature look, certainly for the earlier bikes. Like, if you're looking at the modern classics on the website, um, that header one, um, the first one that I built, definitely has that tight bend. Um, And it's weird because some people really, I've seen discussions on forums where people are like, oh, Dave only does that low bend. He can't do like a gentle, you know, like long radius bend and i'm like "Uh, okay (laughs) i actually i can (laughs) Uh uh-huh it's just that that's the that's the ramp that i used when i started out when i started building disc brake forks i actually built a couple of much bigger radius um ramps and honestly that's what i use more nowadays
2: Mm -hmm.
1: um you know obviously for disc brake forks but also like i had some people that really didn't like the low band and wanted a more gradual bend. So
0: now,
1: now I have to ask people, like, okay, what Ben do you want? You know? Yeah. So it's, it goes that deep.
0: Yeah, it's funny because sometimes you think a question like that, it's like, do I even ask? It's like maybe I'm opening a can of worms. Maybe I'm just con- confusing my customer and then I'm going to make them I'm going to like cloud their brain with indecision and then we'll just be at a standstill at the other, on the other hand, it's like, you know, if you don't ask that question and you just charge forward, then they might develop an opinion later or something, you know? And yeah, it's, I know it's, it's, it's kind of hard like to a, know. Uh,
1: it's, it's tricky to know like, okay, how much, um, how in depth does does any given customer want to get, you know, cause you can get really in the weeds and people's eyes kind of glaze over and they're like, uh, okay, I can see we need to pull back here, but other people are like, "Oh man, they're all in. They want to like, okay, I want the 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 down tube brazons at you know two hundred and four millimeters up the down tube. So yeah, you, you, know, you just have to like, at, at, you just have to feel it out with every customer and decide like, okay, you know what's your level of engagement on this the, this really like minutia of frame building? So
0: yeah. It, when you were working at Waterford, did you did you do anything with Schwinn, Schwinn Paramount stuff, or did you see those, or did you know anyone who had worked long? Because for people who are listening who don't know, the Waterford facility is uh, what's called Waterford Precision. It's owned by Richard Schwinn. It's uh, it's sort of like the mm-hmm. the modern day if there is a something that's traceable back to the Schwinn bike manufacturing heritage, it's Waterford Precision, right? Did you know anyone there who had been there for a long, long time?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. So Mark Muller, the head design guy, was there. You know, I remember reading Bicycle Guide and seeing his name come up in the Paramount, you know, test things. Um, and so when I actually met him, Actually, he was totally not what I was imagining. It took me a while to realize, like, oh, that's Mark Muller. <laughs> oh, <laughs> crap. You know, obviously Richard had been a part. Um, Mark Muller had been there for a long time. The the head brazier when I started there, um, John Sutherland, had, had worked on Paramounts. Um, he had actually worked at Schwinn's factory in Greensboro, um, Mississippi. I believe it's Mississippi. Um, so there were a few guys, I think even the painter had been around during the Schwim era. So yeah, um, there was definitely some of that. And then, you know, up until today, they, we, they still do a ton of work and restorations on Schwims. So while I was there, I was generally the guy who was working on any repairs and restoration work. So even if a bike was just coming back to get repainted, I would often have my hands on it to just do like an alignment check um, or go through things and make sure um, you know the brazons were still, you know, um, in the right place, nothing gotten damaged. Um so I handled a lot of paramounts. Um, and they're, they're they're really interesting because some of them are gorgeous, and you can tell somebody put a ton of time and effort into them. And then there's some of those bike boom paramounts where it looks like it was maybe like Friday afternoon. <laughs> and the guys like were ready for the weekend, and this one kind of like squeaked out. So,
2: yeah.
1: yeah, there's there's kind of a range there. um I know there's a lot of folks out there who really like treasure their their Paramounts, so and I don't want to I don't want <laughs> to to uh, poo poo that, but uh yeah they yeah. were great bikes, um, and I I've touched a lot of them, done a lot of tube replacements, um fixed some brazing, done all kinds of stuff, and. and that was a great experience too. Like doing repairs on bikes is oftentimes way harder than building a new bike. So I got a ton of experience not only with Schwinn's, but we did repairs on on almost any brand. So um, bikes would show up, and you know you'd okay, you know you pull a bike apart, and you're like, oh crap, <laughs> this one's pinned. <laughs> yeah, I just pulled like the the lug tabs off. So, yeah, it's a learning <laughs> process for sure.
0: Wow. Yeah, yeah, the the pinning your lugs doesn't make it any easier to repair. That's a that's
1: no. A, it does not. No, um, yeah, for sure.
0: That it, that makes me think of another question. So my uh, a guest past guest Tom Lamarch he jokingly i'm sure he heard it somewhere but but anyway the term the tin shack alliance is a funny term that i learned from him and it's you know it's i I think you probably qualify but any of the builders who just have like a a small little shop you know and uh right Mm kind of like the dream of having like a relatively simple and straightforward brand that you can operate and and you get to focus on the work itself you don't have to you don't have to manage employees, right? Cause like where you worked at Sarada and where you worked at Waterford, it's a big team enterprise. There's a bunch of people, different departments, you know, there's a lot of overhead mm-hmm. and whatever versus like, you get to do Ellis with a higher degree of freedom on your terms. Mm-hmm. It's your singular vision. You have a lot of autonomy. Um, what, you know, having done both and you've, you've done your own thing for a long time now, and not a lot of my guests haven't done both. So how would you compare and contrast the two and like the benefits that either has?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll rope in your, one of your other questions, which was like the machine roundup. Um, I think it's interesting because I worked at two factories where, and, and Waterford, we literally had machines that did almost every part of the process. Like, there's a machine or like a pneumatic Ram that literally knocks the little slot out of the C tube. Yeah. Um, So you like slide a bike onto this, this horn and you like hit a foot pedal and this Ram comes down and like blasts that little slot out. And it's cool. I mean, it certainly does the job. And if you, you know, when, when guys were building like racks of 20 bikes, you know, of gunners or the production bikes, you know, it's, Way easier to do that than stand there with a hole saw or mount the thing into a bridge port and use a cutter. Um, It really speeds things up, and so it's an interesting world because my shop now—I literally have a drill press. I think it's like the one piece of machinery that I would say that I have, and then I have die grinder, a couple of dyna files, Um, and I do have access to a lathe which I I, I, it's not on premises here. I I use a lathe at Ben cycle and basically I turn down um, four crowns on that. Mm -hmm. Occasionally I'll do like a little bit of mild um, (laughs) fabrication on that, but I'm not a machinist by any means. Um, So it's interesting to like have this shop because I'm doing all one-off stuff. What a lot of people get like, and they get into frame building, they think like, "Okay, I have to have all these machines like that's how you build frames. and what I found after all these years is like the the for me the equation is once you get good at hand mitering tubes, like I can almost do that as fast as you could change all the settings on you know whatever milling machine and change the whole saw and mm-hmm. move the angle and um those tools are great if you're doing production runs of bikes where you're cutting 20 down tubes for 56 centimeter frames and you can just like set that tool up Mm -hmm. and just go like one tube after another and just like do all the head tube miters and then move the machine around and do all the bottom bracket miters. Like I'm just not doing that here. (laughs) Yeah. It does. It's, it's nice because and it's not like i feel like i'm doing anything more pure there's certainly nothing wrong with having machines to do the mitering for you there's there's some tubes and and some joints where i'm like oh man it would be nice to have a a, a machine but the equation that i have to look at is would i make enough more bikes to justify the cost of that machine or the cost of the space that it takes
0: exactly and i,
1: I work in a a fairly compact area in literally in our basement of, the, of our house. And so, man, there's just no way I'm getting a bridge board in here. <laughs> so, yeah. It's like partly necessity that, you know, I do it this way and partly like, it, it's just, it works. You yeah. Know? If there's something that I can't manage, like I, I, I haven't really come across it, honestly.
0: Yeah. So, uh this is um an, I'm in no way steering you toward putting a Bridgeport in your basement but this is reminded me of something <laughs> funny. There's a guy on YouTube uh, who uses the the name Kane. He's a you know, I'm your old shop teacher. Anyway, he uh mm-hmm. he has a YouTube video about how he got the machines in his basement, down into his basement and he has photos from when he him oh. and a bunch of guys disassembled the Bridgeport was the heaviest one. And they carry down all the smaller parts and then the big, like, 800-pound casting or whatever, like the uh, the base of it, basically, that's mm-hmm. the bottom and then, like, the the, the upright part. Uh, uh-huh. uh, anyway, yeah, they, they got that... I forget. He has pictures and he explains it, but, like, they lifted it up onto the stoop. They had to get it up to, like, the, you know up to the main floor and then they kind of pushed it through like his kitchen down the stairs and they had put they had made like a slide down the stairs and they had like winched it down okay. or something it's insane it's totally insane so okay anyway for anyone who's thinking they can't get a bridge port in their basement like if you're that committed <laughs> <laughs> you could do it
1: yeah i don't know yeah <laughs> I have a sort of similar story in that the, like the, so the biggest piece of equipment, like heaviest piece of equipment I have is my, my uh, alignment table, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: which um, is, is a four by three foot piece of one inch thick steel. Nice. Um, And it was kind of a fun story when I first, um, you know, left Waterford, I'm like, okay, I've got to get everything. So I've got to get a plate, you know, and at Waterford we used a big old granite, plate that was like a foot thick it was like an inspection table
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and i'm like boy i'm probably not going to get something like that it was just thousands of pounds um and so i just like okay how how do you like where do you get an alignment plate from (laughs) i don't know so i called like a, a local place that sold the sheets of steel and i'm talking to this guy and he like rather immediately realizes like okay this guy has no freaking clue what he's doing <laughs> he doesn't want to buy like ten thousand square feet of steel either so he's wasting my time but rather than just like slamming the phone down he's like you know he should call <laughs> he's like there's this guy that does like scrap metal and I'm like oh do you have his number and I can hear him like going through his like Rolodex or whatever. And again, like this guy totally could have blown me off, but he mm-hmm. gave me the number of this guy and you go up to this old industrial building in in Milwaukee down near the, the waterfront. Um, you know, like pop the door open in this place and it's just massive. And there's, there's just like random stuff stacked up, like all over the place. And I walked down and I had called him before and he's like, I think I have a, I think I have a piece that'll work for you. And he pulls out this piece and it, it was literally part of, I think a, a table that had, been, had had a machine um, attached to it at some point. Yeah, and It had a couple of, it had a couple of holes cut in it and some threaded holes, you know, in it in various spots, but you could see that it had been blanchered ground. You could see like the circles and I had a straight edge there and I looked at it And it was actually a little big. It was was probably four by four. I'm like, could you guys cut it? And so they plasma cut the thing for me. Mm -hmm. And I came back later and picked it up. And I got that. And then he also had a gigantic um, bin with like industrial casters in it. So I had built a stand for this plate. And, you know, I'm looking at MSC and McMaster car and like these casters are, you know, a hundred bucks a piece. Yeah. I think I got this piece of plate and the casters from, I don't know, maybe 150 bucks. That's great. Um, that's that's incredible. In a, in a borrowed truck, you know, I took it home and I, I like, I kind of scraped it cause it was like, it had all kinds of like machine oil and goo yep. and grit and stuff on it. And, you know, the the really fun part was getting it down into my basin. So literally, it's it's a four by three piece of a one inch thick plate, and it has like some it has some framework underneath too. So if you figure like if you go to your book and you look up like what's a square foot of steel weigh, I think it's five hundred and fifty pounds. <laughs> and then if you figure in the extra bit, it's probably like in the six hundred pound range. And so <laughs> I had two friends who came over voluntarily and we like got it off the truck, kind of slid it on its edge across my driveway. And then I had put up a, a two by 12 on my stairs. It was just like a rough. I mean, my basement in my old house in Waterford was just like an unfinished. It was a hundred year old farmhouse. So just some wooden steps going out of the basement. So I put a two by 12 down and like screwed it in the stairs. And then it, <laughs> I had my old rock climbing gear <laughs> and I literally like tied a, a, a rope to it Wait, and I, and I you, belayed it down the yeah, stairs. You, you shout I to your friend,
0: on belay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So I'm like lowering it and they're like guiding it down this, this, this ramp and we get it down to the basement. And then like, this was the real trick was we have to literally like the three of us have to pick this thing up and put it on the table, like this, this base that I've made. And that was, I thought we were going to maybe hurt ourselves. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When we, when I moved back in 2015, when my, my wife and I moved, I'm like, okay, we're, we're definitely going to have some movers coming through this because we had, we had gravity working with us on that, on that trip down the stairs, but going up the stairs was going to be trickier.
0: Yeah. That's that's wild. I've moved a lot of heavy stuff over the years and like every time I do it, you know, you get a little more I mean, because a lot of it's just like, you know, levers and wedges and, you know, how the Egyptians built Mm -hmm. the pyramids or whatever. It's just kind of basic stuff. And, you know, maybe you use a pry bar and you block it up on one corner and then you use the pry bar and you block it up on the other corner and you just kind of go back and forth. There's all sorts of little tricks and stuff. But yeah, like when you're doing a project and like you don't have the vision yet and you're like, oh man, I just hope that we, (laughs) I just hope we make it through this.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And the other trick was then I had to drill. So... I went to a machine shop and had the actual um um parts for doing alignment on it on it so like the bottom bracket post and then some of the other pieces but I had to drill holes in it for that bottom bracket post that's not easy so I'm like okay I had to roll it over to my drill press and then like jack it up to get it to the right point where Mm -hmm. the drill press could actually reach it (laughs) so that was a very very tricky procedure as well but yeah it's uh, the necessity is definitely the mother of invention when it comes to that
0: so now uh, some people think that alignment tables are overrated i think having an alignment reference is handy even if you didn't strictly need it it can save you a lot of like mm-hmm. chasing your tail sometimes to just like immediate like if you're like wait a minute is this too bowed and then you just roll it and you're like okay it's the other thing that i was referencing oh, yeah. it against or sometimes it's nice to just kind yeah. of know where you stand and then move forward without like you know you can just check once efficiently and then move on that's really it can be valuable
1: oh absolutely yeah and that I mean, that's just like keeping you from building, like, you know, mistakes at every step and building them in, you know, and it's like, okay, now, you know, I've got this whole big collection of mistakes at the end and it's like one big mistake. So yeah, like you said, rolling tubes, you know, that happens on every single tube that I use. So it just, it just helps getting everything, um, as close as you can, as, as good as you can before you start putting them in the fixture and and putting heat on the bike
0: yeah yeah absolutely uh do you want to talk some you have a collection of nabs award bikes uh yeah how did that go for you how did you get those what what was it that stood out um tell us about that
1: yeah uh, i'm i mean i'm really fortunate to to i guess you know, to have whatever I'm building has appealed to the judges at MAMs. I I certainly think there's some element of your when you're at the time when we were doing this. There, people are trying to figure out like, okay, what do the judges like? What are we? I don't know how much of that was like just a synergy of like, okay, they. they you know, there was certainly a period of time um, where there were some vintage guys who were doing the judging. And that definitely was my sweet spot. I think, Mm -hmm. um, definitely the year that, that I won best loved in 2009. And I think best in show, it was like, um, I think Dale, uh, from, um, from North Carolina was one of the judges and Peter Weigel. And, uh, I'm trying to think of all the other guys, but they were like probably more like lean toward the vintage side of things. And so I think my bikes appealed to them, but, you know, I, what I really try to do is just, you know, follow my aesthetic and show up and, you know, try and do something that's a little bit outside of the box um, each year and, and bring that in show. And and I, I think I'm lucky that I I had all the experiences that I had mm-hmm. um, coming up, you know, where I i have built brass braised bikes, I've built fillet braised bikes, and I've had some like, incredible frame builders teach me how to do that. Um, and guys who have, have also won those same awards, um, you know, the year that I won, um, best fillet, uh, for a fat bike that I built, um, I kind of have to, um, thank Dave Kirk for not showing up that year <laughs> and winning best fillet instead. of me because you know, his stuff is just like, you know, without peer, um, and the fillet front, but, um, really fortunate that, that people are digging what I did. And, and it, it got me a ton of, of uh, you know, notice from people and, and it definitely helped kind of propel the business forward. So I, I can't knock it. I know there's like, if you want to go and find people complaining about the awards at NABS, uh, there's no shortage of that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I probably complained a bit in my day too. Um, <laughs> obviously I feel like all my awards were, <laughs> <were> totally deserved. <laughs> yeah. It's only <laughs> when you didn't get, ones. yeah, no, I, I <laughs> those other ones that were about the, the, yeah. So yeah. it I, it was such a double-edged sword. Like I, it was one of the things that made it really exciting, but at the same time, like it just caused so much like churn and like stress. And it, it I think it made it a little less fun in, in some ways doing yeah. that show. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the things that I like about Philly Um, from the times that I've been there is it's just not like, there's just, it's less stressful. People aren't like fixating on the awards and so they're showing up with what they normally do and they're talking to people and it's just, it's not this like thing that's hanging over the whole proceeding. Yeah. So the flip side of that is I think without the awards, a lot of times the media shows up and doesn't know what to cover without the awards. Um, I think the media at this point now with the niche that we're in, for the most part, they don't totally understand it. You know, they're used to looking at, you know, carbon bikes and, you know, trying to figure out like, okay, what have you done to make this 10% stiffer and 5% more compliant, you know, and whatever else. So they come to the handheld bike show and they're like, oh, what are these steel bikes? Like, whoa. What should we take pictures of? What's good? And so when, when the, they would hang an award on a bike, they'd be like, okay, we all have to go over here and take a picture of this bike. And so, if you didn't win an award, like all the media just went right past you to the bike that had the ribbon on it. And so, you know, for better or worse, it was it was, you know, tricky to get you, to get the word out if if you weren't one of those winners. So I was fortunate to be a winner.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Multiple times. And I've heard people, yeah, on the one hand gripe about the awards and I've heard people say that it helps sell bikes. And I have to imagine that, you know, when you're, when the judges are saying that it's their favorite thing and then the the media outlets are taking pictures of it and, and you have the ribbon, it can't hurt, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, those are the bikes that are showing up on the internet, you know, the day after. And so the people that didn't go to the show, like those are the bikes that they're going to see from that show. They're not going to see the bike from like that dark corner booth, you know, that was in, you know, just like in an unfortunate spot. And maybe that guy built an awesome bike. That's, you know, every bit as good as the one that has the wearable on it. So, yeah. And, and you're also at the, you're at the mercy of what the judges can understand. And, and, uh, not everyone understands what goes into making custom bikes, you know, even guys who you know work for magazines and stuff. it's just it's a, it's a very narrow world and very narrow like you know, level of expertise. so yeah, and, and a lot of the guys who are great at being judges because of all the controversy, Nabs decided, like, I'm not never going to be a judge again because I don't want to have people like yelling mm-hmm. in my ear about how, oh, yeah. how come my bike didn't win? Yeah. How come that bike won? That you, bike is junk. But, you couldn't pay so. me to judge them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I wouldn't no, do exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs>
1: and I, I wouldn't do I wouldn't do it either. So I totally get it. It's just, uh, it's just like you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. And and so. Yeah, I'm, it's fun to have them hanging up in my basement and see the awards there. But it's like, boy, there was a, there's a lot, there's a lot wrapped up in that for sure. So, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you when you were at Serrata, Did you know? I know just a couple people who uh, do. Uh, well, who, who they work at Number Twenty Two Frameworks now, which you know, when mm-hmm. when Number Twenty Two, as I understand it, it's two Canadians. They started getting their bike frames manufactured, I think, by like Linsky, and then within the first year or two, they had some success, and then they they kind of bought or they they built a thing with some of the ex you know guys from uh, Serata, and so anyway, mm-hmm. um, but that's Scott Hawk and it's uh, uh, Frank. Uh oh, geez, I can't think of his last name, but uh, Frank. Frank,
1: Frank F- Yeah,
0: yep, exactly. Did you know those guys?
1: I know Frank. I know Frank. Yes.
0: Yeah, I, he's I think he a phenomenal welder.
1: Things. Yes, he started as just like a teenager, and he, I, I think he's still a punk rocker. Yeah. He was like, <laughs> we all got a kick out of Frank because he would come in on Mondays and he'd still have like the Elmer's glue in his hair from getting his mohawk all spiked up over the weekend and so yeah we were quite none of us quite understood frank fully but yeah frank turned into one hell of a welder so yeah he yeah, did
0: it's, it's i do i almost took a job in like 2016 at number 22 and i didn't they had just hired somebody but i lived in syracuse new york like two hours away so i spent a day there one time and i got to know them a little bit. Mm -hmm. I sat down with Frank for like half an hour and he showed me a little bit of titanium welding. I hadn't done much. I had done some steel and then, and then I tried one so he could assess whether or not I would be trainable or where I was at, but it was really helpful because he Mm -hmm. knew what he was doing. He was, I think he was 36 at the time. And he said that in his adult life, he had pretty much only ever worked as a titanium bike frame welder. He said he worked as a car stereo installer for a yeah. minute, but basically that was the only job he had ever had. And that's like the gravy job. That's the kind of job. Some people, they have this idea like, one day I'll weld titanium bikes somewhere. And I think he had done like yeah. community college or high school or something. And he just walked in and they just, for whatever reason, they just started him in titanium bikes. And that he did a whole career of it, like half of his life yeah. at that point, which was amazing. He's very, very good at it. and And since then, I think he's just kept doing it.
1: Yeah, and how many? I mean, how many guys can say that? Yeah, like, right. And then like one other guy, like maybe some some guy in in China who's who's welding titanium bikes,
2: you mm-hmm. know. And,
1: but yeah, I mean, I think that's what's it's awesome, and it's it's also like really rare to have had that, like where you could walk into Serata and like you know learn how to build bike frames and yeah. like you know, have that almost kind of like apprenticeship type thing. It just, it's so rare nowadays that, that there are even places where you could do that. Um, you could probably count them on one hand. Yeah. So I feel like I was, I was incredibly lucky and probably I'm pretty rare in the fact that I worked at two of those places. Yeah. Um, before I, and, and, and had 10 years of experience under my belt before I ever, you know, built a bike under my own name. So yeah. Yeah.
0: It, Did you ever meet? It was, it was a, Sorry, did you um, ever meet Alan Varco? You know,
1: I'm friends with him on Facebook, but I we did not overlap at Serata. Okay, no.
0: He's he's a good friend of mine. He's been helpful to me with machining over the years. I knew that he spent some time at Serata, so I had to ask. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure some of the yeah. less listeners of the podcast will know him as a as a frame building, uh, you know, contributor to these different places and stuff. But
1: yeah, so. The two the two big guys that I learned from were Kelly Bedford and Dave Kirk.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: Kelly was the guy who showed me how to turn a torch on and mm-hmm. how to how to stack brass up. And then I really got to hand it to Dave Kirk because, you know, he was the guy who kind of recognized in me that I didn't want to just do like the minimum amount. You know, and and I think this is the case in a lot of factory jobs. You know, there's a standard that everybody has to you know get to. In order to do work there, and a lot of guys were just like, "Yeah, that's fine." Like, and and I think at Serata it was a pretty high standard, but I think Dave recognized in me that like I didn't want to just make like just good enough bikes. He, so, you know, he, he did a thing when I was first learning how to finish frames, where he took a frame right off the rack that somebody else had brazed. He's like, "Okay, I'm going to finish like one side of the lug." And then I'm going to have you like flip the bike over and you're going to finish the other side and try to make it look just like what I just did. And showed me how to do it. Showed me like, okay, like, you know, first you use the the emery cloth with a file behind it. And then you like rip a long strip of emery and you like work it across the lug here. And, you know, that was the kind of stuff that, you know, nobody else was really teaching you. It's like if you were lucky, you would kind of pick it up along the way. But like he just took a lot of time, you know, and not just that, but. You know, all along the way, um, he was really instrumental in kind of getting me to where I am. And, you know, and we're still good friends to this day. So I have to uh, give him a lot of credit.
0: Yeah, I need to get him on the show. I don't know his story that well, but I'm obviously aware of his bikes. It looks like I, I knew he was in Bozeman. So he must have moved from Saratoga Springs to Bozeman at some point in the last 20, 30 years, right?
1: Yeah. So he left. So I started bra- really doing brazing in like ninety seven, ninety eight at Serata. And then mm-hmm. he moved um, a year or so before I left. Um, and it was really an interesting fr- process because, they were, you know, I, in a way I think I used him as a bit of a crutch where whenever I had a question, it's like, boom, Dave, you know, mm-hmm. like before I even, before I even think about it, yeah. it's just like, Oh, just go ask Dave. And so there was like, An interesting point where when he left, you're like, okay, I don't have Dave to lean on. So now I'm like, okay, let me just stand here and think about this for Mm -hmm. a
2: minute.
1: It's like a lot of times you can figure it out yourself, actually. And it's like, okay, that was a part of the growing process of like, okay, 90% of the time I can figure this stuff out myself. And so that was just like the next step along the process. So Yeah. yeah.
0: I I always say that's one of the really great things about working for yourself like I mean I've been self-employed for a while doing what I do but even just when it was my own hobby shop and I didn't have anyone else around to ask questions you know like you need to figure out electrical for your shop you figure it out you need to figure out machine rigging or you need to figure out torch work or TIG work or or anything, it's mm-hmm. like you know, there, there's internet resources, and you can network with people and ask them questions. But like when you're in your shop and you're just trying to figure something out, I think it's it's it can be helpful to have people around, obviously, but it also can be helpful to not have people around because it just kind of forces you to like, you know, be a little scrappier and a little bit more independent, and I think mm-hmm. that's good.
1: And it's really satisfying when you finally do figure it out too. Yeah, you know, and sometimes I'll have a little project like percolating for a couple of weeks just in the back of my brain. And then like, boom, you know, at the least unexpected time, you're like, Oh, that's how I'm going to do that project. And it's like, go downstairs, you know, get out the materials, start working on it. And it's like, Oh, it's so satisfying when that all comes together. and, And you, you did like figure this thing out that has been nagging at you. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Cool. Well, that's most of my list here, and that's roughly the time frame. Is there anything else that you thought that we should cover that we haven't yet?
1: I don't know. I feel like we've we've hit the high spots for sure.
0: Yeah. Um. Here's one that I'll ask you: Is uh, if you had advice to either like newer frame builders who are getting into it, or you could think of it as advice that you would give to a younger version of yourself. Is there anything that comes to mind, like just general advice about this sort of work?
1: Oh man, my temptation is to go full Bruce Gordon and say, <laughs> "Run, run, screaming!" or become a plumber.
0: Yeah, the cynic. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I. It's, I don't know if I look. I look back on my career and I'm like, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's. I don't know. It's a tough gig. It's not, yeah, you're not, not going to get rich doing this. Um, I, I, Yeah, I don't know what I would say. I think I got to hand it to like, I know there are a lot of builders out there who, you know, just like taught themselves in their garage and got on forums and asked questions. It's like, man, that is really, really hard. So, like, my hat's off to you because that is mm-hmm. definitely like way harder than what I did. Um, I got super lucky. In the yeah. fact that I I had those experiences at Serrata and Waterford, um, so I don't know if that's like you know sage advice or or not, but yeah, yeah. Well, what about this?
0: What <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off.
1: No, no, go ahead.
0: Well, I was going to say, like, let's say, let's say uh, someone's interested in frame building, there are a handful of classes, although those have. I know the Bicycle Academy and UBI are both kind of closed at this time um, for frame building school, mm-hmm. but there's a couple others. It, but there's also, you know, you were saying how Waterford and and um, uh, Serata are, you know, kind of rare examples, but there is commotion and there's Bike Friday and there's uh, mm-hmm. Santana, I think. And there's seven cycles. There's uh, number 22. There's still like a handful around, um, of different yeah. ones. There's, I guess, Linsky. I don't know all of these outfits that well, but I know there are places would it, and, and moots. And I don't know if I mentioned that one. Would you recommend that to mm-hmm. someone? Like if they had the opportunity to work somewhere for a while, like it, it seemed like that was a good on-ramp for you because there was a lot of other talented people around.
1: I think it it all depends on the culture at whatever the place is, and it's so hard to know that before you go there um you know and not to 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 throw shade at at Waterford, but I think if I had showed up at Waterford and started there instead of at Serrata, it would have been a lot harder to progress um I think it, it, just the culture there was a little more like protective of you know your little you know, area and niche that you understood. And so, you know, Waterford was great because granted I was there for a long time before they ever showed me, but like once I kind of got going, um, people were really helpful and there was like enough of like kind of an enthusiast and cyclist vibe there. Uh, I think what a lot of people don't realize about bike factories is, um, not everybody there is a cyclist. Some guys are like just factory guys. (laughs) And <laughs> so, um, and they're not always like super excited about, like, some guys uh, that I've worked with over the years would have been, been just as happy making four by fours or, um, shotguns or, you know, you name it, like, mm-hmm. whatever widget you can think of. Like, bikes held no allure whatsoever. It was just they showed up there to make bikes because that's what they got paid to do. Yeah. And so, the, you know, the, it, if you show up at one of these places where, you know, you, you kind of get into a slot and, and other people don't want to share with you, um, it can, it, you know, you could be there for a long time before that, you know, you, you move up the ladder. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it but it, if you can find the right situation, yeah, go for it. But it's just so hard to know. Um, you now there were years with, before Ben bought the company back where I would like, Buzz through my, um, work in the shipping department because I was like, oh man, maybe I can go over in the machining department and learn how to do this, or I can do this. And inevitably when I would go and say like, Hey, I'm done. Like what else? They would put me on sandblasting. And I'm like, <laughs> boy, sandblasting is like one job where I, you can actually feel yourself getting stupider. Like <laughs> your brain cells are dying while you're doing sandblasting, and I'm like, "Yeah, boy." All all that I learned from that was I'm gonna like make all the work that I have in the shipping department last all day. Yeah, because I do not want to sandblast. So <laughs> it's just tricky. Like you don't you don't know what that situation is going to be, and and I did. I applied actually at um CoMotion a bunch of years ago when I was kind of looking to move on from Serrata. I actually uh, flew out and talked to Dewan oh, at cool. CoMotion and they seemed really cool and um I think they would be that would be a good place. I, I don't I've never worked there. I I actually interviewed also at Match Cycle. I don't know if you know any of the history there. No. Um but they were they were um a place uh, Tim Isaacs put it together. And they were up in, um, Seattle and Kirk Bacenti was actually working there along with Kurt Goodrich. Hmm. Um, and so I met both of them and they were building the lugged, um, paramount bikes. Um, Schwinn had done like a run of, um, lugged steel paramounts and titanium paramounts. Wow. and. The- Serato, Serato was actually building the titanium ones. And then this little company match who was also building some of the, um, I think most of the Rivendell's at the time was doing these Schwins. Hmm. And unfortunately, when I went out there to interview with them, the whole Schwin thing was kind of coming to an end. And I think it was not a good, (laughs) not a good sign for the business. And they eventually went away. So they clearly weren't looking to add people, Mm -hmm. but it was interesting to to kind of see their shop and see what their setup was. So, yeah, yeah. I think it's great if you can get into a situation where, you know, you're in a production setting where there's just more work happening and you can see how that, how that happens. I think one of the other things that is really interesting about working in a bike factory is, um, knowing when you're done with a bike and (laughs) let me explain a little more. Like I think there's a lot of newbie builders who like they're working on a bike and it's like, if you want to, you can just keep massaging that thing and like getting finer and finer grits of sandpaper. And, and sometimes it doesn't make it any better.
2: Uh (laughs) Like
1: when you're working at a bike factory, somebody will come over to you and tell you like, Hey, move it. like you're done this bike is done or you need to do this this and this and it's like th- there is a beauty to that because even when i first started doing ellis you know the temptation is is like i want to make this bike perfect because you know when you're first starting out it's like this one bike is like the only bike that exists with my name on it it has to be perfect and as you do more and more it's easier but it's like you just got to know, like, okay, I have to stop working on this bike now and send it to paint because it's done. And I think that can be a challenge for for new builders. It's just to know, like, wh- where is that point? What does that bike look like
0: Yeah. And it's done? I, I, I think I understand that, and I really appreciate that, too. I think it can be tempting when you're new to something and you are wide-eyed and you're really enthusiastic and passionate and you just love it. You want to do great work. It's and you're mm-hmm. you're maybe not doing it for money yet or something. It's attempting mm-hmm. to like have no boundaries and to say, "Well, I could just, you know, carve this lug set for, you know, 1,000 hours or something." And I exactly. think I think when you put the boundaries around things and you live within the constraints of like you know, we'll call it the real world or whatever. But like when you live within some sort of constraints, I think it forces you to be a little bit more creative. It's like, you know, if you know that you only have a certain realistic budget or time frame, then it kind of gives things a little bit more stakes and like maybe drama. And like, I think it kind of elevates you. It kind of forces you to like um, work a little bit smarter at the same time. And I, I really like that the boundary I think is not only you know, like the oppression of the man or something. It's like, I feel like it makes things kind of work better to like bound things. Uh, because in, well, in reality they are bounded, you know?
1: Yeah. And I mean, the reality is you're not do. I mean, unless you're independently wealthy and you're just building bikes for the hell of it, you know, you're trying to, you know, put food on the table and pay for a roof over your head. So, you know, if you're putting 400 hours into a frame and you're making, you know, a dollar 25 an hour.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's that's something I get it done. So and it's I that's the other thing like I I feel for for newbie builders it's like man it's just so hard. Like how do you how do you set yourself apart, you know? And I I feel like a lot of guys struggle like when I when I've been to Philly and seen a new bike, you just like if you just build a traditional diamond frame, you know, how do how does this look any better or different or appealing to people? So you're like you know your natural um, inclination is like, okay, I've gotta like stick some stainless stuff on here or some or do something really funky and different so that it like sets it apart. it's just, it's hard. It's hard to break into this business because yeah. there's a ton of different options out there, and it's you know how do you how do you make your mark?
0: yeah yeah differentiation when i talk to i reference this a lot but the episode i did with carl strong but he says the you know some of the hardest things that most frame builders struggle with is differentiation and then you know like yeah building enough frames you know like like uh, efficiently enough that you could be profitable but yeah differentiation is really hard i struggled with that and oh yeah and i think many people do like to find your own voice that resonates with people
1: right and even when you've done that it's like now how do i sell enough of these bikes you know that's the other side of the equation it's like if you can be a great guy in the shop who's just like a total introvert and you know (laughs) loves to just stand there and make bike frames but it's like unfortunately the the flip side of that is you have to go out into the world and meet people and talk to them and get them to buy your bike frames too so it's like and, and we're and we're all better at some of those things than others like you know i'm not (laughs) i don't love doing like all the paperwork and all the accounting and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and and i'm not as good at marketing as some guys are you know like my my inclination is to go like i'm just going to put this awesome thing out into the world and like people will recognize that and they will come to my door but it's like the reality is, is like you have to have a good website and you have to have a presence on the internet and um, you have to go to shows and you have to talk to people. And so it's like all of those, you know, and I, I've been to nabs and seen builders who would like build like a, like a barrier of bikes. And then they would go back and sit in the back corner of the booth and mm-hmm. like, kind of like every time somebody would walk by, they'd like look away.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Boy, you're not doing yourself any favors favors, yeah. you're not going to get up and actually talk to people at the show.
0: So, yeah. It's hard. yeah Cause it's, I, hard. I, it's
1: hard. It's hard. It's hard. I, you got to do all those things.
0: I think you're right, though, because I think a lot of people who are attracted to frame building, they really mm-hmm. maybe they're not quite as social in the sense that they, you know, they could like uh, for some people to stand on your feet at a trade show all weekend is like it drains your batteries, so to speak. It's like socially exhausting. Some of us are not wired yeah. for that. And then other people are. And I yeah. think the people for whom shop work and like toiling on this sort of creative, expressive, beautiful thing. I think a lot of those builder type people are maybe not like gassed up by the thought of like, you know, talking to people and and getting out there.
1: Yeah. And honestly, like I don't, I mean, I never loved public speaking, but what really like, what really gets me revved up is I'm excited to have people look at my bikes and talk to me about my bikes because I'm passionate about that. Yeah. And so, it kind of put, it pushes me past that, like, okay, I'm a little bit, I am a bit of an introvert, but it's like when people want to talk about bikes and specifically my bikes, it's like I'm excited. And, like, what I found is, you know, especially when I first went to NABs, it's like I don't ever want to be out of my booth. Like I don't want to miss anybody. I don't want to, like, go and sit somewhere and eat lunch for an hour because, like, I don't, might like, just like, so I would just get, like, revved up and then, like, at the end of the day, it would be like I got hit by a brick wall because you're like, oh, I haven't, I haven't eaten, I haven't done anything except for talk to people about bikes. But yeah, that was like the turning point for me. Is just like, yeah, that is the thing that gets me like fired up. Is you know meeting people and having them be excited about the bikes too. So yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That's great. I'm I'm glad that that feels that way. I think I think yeah, it's different. Like public speaking because it's part of your job your where you're employed versus like you know getting to speak to people about the thing. And I say that to people sometimes too about marketing right. in general. It's like I think part of the secret of marketing, you know, a product like a bike frame or something is it's like, you know, you're you're choosing to make it a certain way because like you believe that this is like a good way or it's the best way or it's it's the way that makes sense to you. And so, like, when you're in a conversation with somebody who's kind of interested, it's great because it's, like, an opportunity for you to talk about your absolutely favorite thing ever and, like, to try and, like... Point out to them yep. the things that you think make it really good. And like, you're not trying yep. to sell somebody something that they don't need or something you don't believe in. It's like, no, you you consciously made the decision to make it exactly the way you did, because that's what you believe. <laughs> so now that you're talking to somebody about it, it should be pretty easy, actually, to like tell them like why you love doing this the s stays that create this clearance and this kind of look and that you know you really like using the tubing mm-hmm. this way and like they love it they're talking to a nerd who really knows something and like that's interesting exactly it's like so,
1: these are my people yeah
0: yeah so anyway all exactly. right well I'm not going to take up any more of your evening. I really appreciate you being on the show, and I appreciate getting to know you because I've never really spoken to you or talked to you. I don't think I ever ran into you at a show, but I've been aware of your work for over a decade, and it's beautiful. Yeah, so, you. And one of my favorite things yeah. about this podcast is that I get to know people better but then it's a public conversation that other people listening they get to know you better too, and so hopefully it just connects us all. I think that's beautiful. So thanks so much for being a part of that, and um, I yeah. yeah, really glad to have you on hopefully the
1: show. Hopefully we'll run into it. Hopefully we'll run into each other in the real world at some point.
0: Absolutely, cool. Well, until then, awesome. uh, keep building those beautiful beautiful bikes with merely a dynafile and a drill press, and I can't wait to see what <laughs> what you keep rolling out with.
1: Okay. Thanks so much. Yep. Bye. Okay.